This episode of Alt Text is presented by CanadianTech.com, where Canadian innovators meet. Subscribe to one of their local newsletters at www.CanadianTech.com. Hi everyone, this is Alt Text. I'm your host, Erin G. It's the first episode of this, my new show, and I am so excited to bring you a slate of really interesting and fun guests this season. To kick things off, I was fortunate to be joined by Francis Haugen, a senior fellow in residence at McGill's Center for Media, Technology, and Democracy. But you may recognize her name from being the Facebook whistleblower. In 2021, Haugen left her job at Facebook as the lead product manager on the civic misinformation team. After becoming increasingly alarmed by the choices Facebook was making that prioritized profits over public safety and putting people's lives at risk, she opted to blow the whistle on them by sharing thousands of internal Facebook documents, which revealed that the company was well aware of the negative effects their products had on the public. Since then, she has been advocating for social media that prioritizes users over profits by engaging with lawmakers all over the world. At McGill, Haugen will support research and public engagement on online safety policy, youth digital rights, and data transparency. We chatted about why she opted to come to Canada to do this work and the opportunities for Canada to balance freedom and safety while also looking into the future about how we can protect youth and future iterations of the internet. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Um, I have been really looking forward to this conversation and I work kind of in at the intersection mm -hmm. of tech and public policy and I am a freelance writer among other things um, but I also have an interest in mm -hmm. web3 so cool. I'm hoping that we can kind of touch on a bunch of different things sure whatever you want to talk about <laughs> and so you are right now the fellow in residence at the Max Bell School at McGill and mm -hmm. you know for those who may not be aware of their work. What made you pick Canada to work on, um, to do your work? And like, what do you hope to achieve there? Totally. Um, so I, I live in the United States. Um, I grew up in the United States. Um, uh, right now we are having, um, you could describe it as like a political moment where uh, um, we struggle with bipartisanship and uh, one of the things that I have been, I've tried very, very hard since I first came out, um, starting with my choice to work with the Wall Street Journal over, say, maybe the New York Times or the Washington Post, um, uh, is that I want to reach across the aisle. Like I want, I want this to be an, an, an issue that isn't viewed as like a conservative issue or a liberal issue. It's, it's an issue about democracy. And in the United States, um, even academia is, is really associated with like teams, you know, like there's, there's um, things that are, are just the political environment is so polarized. And uh, when I got the offer from McGill, I was really excited because one, one of my favorite professors, Taylor Owen, works at McGill. 
Um, I think he's one of the most practical um, people in the public policy space in terms of understanding the limitations of what technology can actually do um, and what is a constructive or not constructive way to approach uh, regulation. Um, and the fact that it gives me a, a way to be able to, to influence um, you know, the, the conversation around how should we move forward without being associated with like a team in the United States. And so between you know, the attraction of getting to work with the team at McGill and the fact that it gives me kind of a, it allows me to continue to try to work in a bipartisan way, um, it's an amazing opportunity. Um, yeah. and, and I think there's this interesting moment for Canada, which is uh, there are rumors that in the next year, there potentially is going to be introduced uh, tech accountability policies in Canada. And um, I'm a big proponent that the only way we can have a democratic conversation about what to do about social media is if people understand what choices are available for them to make. And up till now, that conversation has really been framed by the social media companies. And when, uh, I think there's an opportunity, and this is like specifically what my job is at, at McGill, to, to help um, uh, raise awareness around how can we have this conversation? Like, what are the different things people can focus on? Or what are the different approaches that are available to us? Um, because that's the way we're going to have a, like a lively, uh, effective democratic debate about how to move forward. Yeah, I know that the Canadian government held a series of roundtables on mm -hmm. the online harms like legislation. And I know, I think Taylor was part of those or has mm -hmm. been the involved expert in panel. some of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that it's, it makes total sense. And unfortunately, that kind of lack of bipartisanship that you were mentioning is creeping up to Canada. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, there, there is an increase in populism uh, and generally like a gross misunderstanding of the definition of free speech. And so mm -hmm. like there, this big movement towards free speech and like the, this like increasing anti-government sentiment. So mm -hmm. when you're trying to reach across the aisle that way, like what do you hope, what's the message that you're trying to convey mm -hmm. to convince people? Uh, the, the work you're doing is valuable and have them understand that. I think it's totally reasonable to be skeptical about state action. You know, like I'm, I am personally like a, um, um, I'm like a little, it's called a little D Democrat. You know, like I'm, I grew up in Iowa. I really believe that there's a lot that we can do for um, things like tech accountability through what I call like the ecosystem of accountability. That's like, you know, um, litigators and investors and concerned citizens and like the whole thing working as activists. But the only way we can do those things is if we have information. And one of the things that I'm really excited about where Canada is going is, you know, I think Canada made a, a pretty big misstep, you know, a couple of years ago when the first version of how they approached online harms was, was really about, like you said, like infringing on free speech. It was like, let's take down all the bad things. Um, and the problem with that is that, you know, take down the bad things sounds really intuitive. It's like, I see bad thing, let's take it down. But the problem is that when you actually try to do that with technology, um, it's really, really hard to classify language in a precise way. You know, two, we, we can literally do something as basic as take two sentences that mean the same thing and show it to a bunch of people. And we're only going to get 90% agreement on do these two sentences mean the same thing. Like that, that's about as basic as it gets. And we can't even agree on that. Um, and so uh, 
the thing that I'm excited about is the expert panel and, and the citizen assemblies. So they brought together large numbers of Canadian citizens, had them sit down for like a week and have hard conversations about how do we move forward. All of those groups came to kind of the same path, which is uh, we need to have laws that require these companies to disclose what risks they know about, like what are the harms they know about, develop plans on how they're going to reduce those risks and give us the data, like actually allow us to ask questions and get real answers um, that would allow us to see if they're making progress. And, and for the thing I keep emphasizing over and over again is our free speech is being infringed today, right? Like Facebook gives you a you know, three cents description of like what is hate speech and like what they're going to take down. And they have a 40 page manual internally of like what they're going to take down. Like we don't actually get to see how these systems perform. Like what are we allowed to say and not say? With passage of, of reasonable laws, we can begin holding these companies accountable for like how they moderate our speech. And so I think there's a, um, that's part of why I'm so excited to be working with McGill is we really need to expand awareness that these companies cannot be allowed to operate in the dark. And the way that we get to start having a democratic debate is by passing a law that allows us to ask questions and get information. Um, so I think there's a, a common path forward on at least transparency that we urgently need to, to push ahead on and table. Yeah, and I, I think a lot about the laws that have been passed in the EU, you know, they've got really hmm. stringent mm -hmm. uh, laws about the use of big data and they uh, have a lot of laws around, you know, the social media regulation. And I believe it was last week or the week before where Twitter was like, actually, we might start thinking about pulling out of Europe yeah. because of these regulations, because they don't agree or align with our so, new like ethos. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a little more subtle than that. So it's, it's uh, Twitter pulled out of something called a code of practice, which is a, a voluntary thing right now of saying, Hey, like, this is how we're going to approach misinformation. Um, you know, this is how we're going to be transparent with the government. This is how we're going to approach things internally. Um, and Twitter pulled out and said, hey, like, we are just not going to do it. Like, we don't want to. And I'm, I'm guessing it, it was less because of the ethos and more because, like, they've just fired a lot of people who were doing those jobs. Like, it's probably actually quite hard for them to comply right now. Mm -hmm. and, and the thing that I find so interesting about it is, um, you know, when they first pulled out the code of practice, they didn't say, we're going to leave Europe. But as soon as Europe came back and said, hey... I know it's voluntary right now, but when, you know, when the law goes into effect in August, it's not going to be voluntary anymore. So like, and then, you know, Elon came out and said, well, maybe we'll leave Europe. I, I think the thing that most people aren't aware of is if Facebook left Europe, I don't know, they lose maybe 7% of their users, 8% of their users. If Twitter left Europe, I think they'd lose 25 or 30% of their, their users. Like they're much less international than um, than Facebook is. And so uh, given how much Elon is already struggling, you know, I think he can choose to do that. But I, I, I think probably what happened is he fired a lot of his policy team. He might not even have known what the consequences were of pulling out of the code of practice. So I think that's where we're currently standing with Twitter. Seems like a real fuck around and find out the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Elon's, Elon's pioneering new strategies for management. He's an, he's an innovator. Yeah, he's something. <laughs> um, 
you know, you talked but, about how. But I, but, uh, but I do want to, I do want to give Elon a teeny bit of credit, which is, um, and I always, I always try really hard that when the platforms do good things, I try to give them props because, you know, we get more, we get more things we compliment. Um, Elon, Elon actually published the algorithm, or we think he published the algorithm mm -hmm. for how Twitter works. And, and the thing I want to draw attention to is um, for most people who have not written code, they may not be aware that like older versions of code are usually a lot worse. You know, like code gets better with time. So your early versions, you're like, oh, I wish no one would see that. Um, and, and Elon didn't just publish how the algorithm works today. He published the history on the algorithm. And, and I thought that was very brave. Mm -hmm. um, and so he needs to do a lot more. We need outcome data. We can't just have the, these inputs. Um, he got rid of the API that allowed academics to observe Twitter. Um, there's a lot of problems, but we should give him props for for at least, you know, being the first mover on publishing the algorithm. For sure. And like the fact of the matter is, is that running any any of these platforms is a very hard job. And you have to oh, be yeah. you have to oh, be yeah. comfortable enough in yourself and your your decisions that you are okay with some people being really mad at you all the time. Oh yeah, all the time. Like I don't, I would never want any of those jobs. <laughs> God, well, yeah. what I, I, I think you were more aware of the scope of the job before than Elon was before he bought Twitter. So, you know. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned that when, in order to kind of ensure that we are actually, uh, we actually have free speech and not um, dealing with any of the unintended consequences that these platforms are putting on us with their opaque policies that we don't have any insight into, um, that we need to pass kind of like smaller scope legislation or some sort of like light legislation or regulation in order to kind of mold that. And I think a lot of concern around regulating platforms from a business perspective is it stifles innovation, it hurts small mm, businesses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so how do you, how do you convince people that regulation is hmm. a good thing? And like, this is a big issue in both the US yeah. and in Canada. Yeah, so I like to, one of the things I've been talking about a lot is um, we need to start talking about regulation in, term, in terms of a consumer bill of rights, right? Like we have rights when it comes to other products, you know, um, when it comes to kids, you know, companies have to think of like, if you have a product that a kid's gonna be near, like my my ear pods, right? Um, I guarantee you, someone at Apple has that and thought about like, what is the choking hazard on this? You know, like what how, what can we do to make this like, you know, slightly more kid safe? Um, and that's because there's laws that say you have a duty of care that you need to think about children. You know, we think uh, we think about things like bookcases falling over. We think about other things that are just systemic dangers. You have to have plans for it, and you have to inform customers about risks. Right now, when it comes to social media, we think of them as frivolous products. You know, we're like, oh, it's a free, fun thing. You know, it's funny dances. It's pictures of cats. It's some, my cousin's breakfast. Um, we don't think about it as the idea that it influences us in any way. And I, I think the thing that I'm super excited, excited about is, you know, last week, the Surgeon General in the United States issued an advisory about teenage mental health and social media. So for context, if you, you know, aren't, aren't a public health nerd, um, there's only been, you know, there's less than 15 of these advisories in the last 50 or 60 years. You know, it's things like cigarettes kill people, uh, 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 breastfeeding is good for infants, uh, obesity is serious, seatbelts save lives. You know, they're, they're, they're really basic things. 
Um, and uh, they're things that we take for granted. And historically, uh, when we have seen these kinds of advisories come through, it, it's kind of like the, the period at the end of a sentence. You know, the sentence is, uh, children are being harmed, the tech companies are not solving this problem on their own, and we need to do something, period. Um, and, and I think the, the, the thing that I, the way I would talk to someone who's, who's concerned saying like, I don't know if we should act, is, is we should say things like, you know, what should be our relationship with technology? You know, do you have the right to reset an algorithm without losing your past, right? You know, do, people go, um, pediatricians talk to me about how they see kids struggling with eating disorders who say, I'm trying to make better decisions now, but, but it follows me on Instagram, you know? Um, you know, these kids have to choose between the documented history of their childhoods, you know, their friends and, and, and their futures. Um, you know, we deserve to have the ability to know what's happening. We, deserve, we deserve to like be able to know how we're being censored. And so I think framing these things in terms of, you know, what should be our bill of rights? I think that's a way to find a common ground. You know, it doesn't have to be about what you can and can't say online. It should be about what, what do we deserve in, term, in terms of our relationship with these platforms? given that we're giving more and more of our information environment over to them. Yeah, in Canada and the US, well, the US is working towards this, but they have, you know, the airline passenger bill of rights, which totally. you, know, you get compensation yeah. for, you know, so however long of a delay. And so- we Or know you can't be it. trapped on planes. That's, that's why that got passed. <laughs> yeah, there, there was, a, I'm in Ottawa and there was a train here coming in from Montreal that was stuck on the tracks on, it was like 30 degrees out. And so 90 plus, and it was for like five hours and the air conditioning was oh. broken. Brutal, brutal. And they yeah. probably ran out of water. Ooh. Yep. Yeah, just awful. Um, but you, you mentioned the the statement by, the, by Vivek Murthy and, you know, hmm. other government officials and experts have, been ringing this alarm about the effects of social media on children and youth. And, you know, I have friends with kids and kids these days are basically born with a device in their hands. And so mm -hmm. how do we make sure that the children of today are better equipped than say you or I are uh, to grow up with the appropriate skills to question, to, to question what they see online and to be yeah. better broadly uh, better digital citizens? So I think that is an amazing question, but I think we actually need to divide into two questions because there's this question of how we're gonna raise digital citizens for the 21st century, because that's what someone who can question is. You know, it's someone who can, can process the information environment, who can, who can navigate this new world. But there's a second question, which is, there are children on these platforms under the age of 13, 14 years old, who uh, are not at a level of cognitive maturity to safely use these platforms. So part of why the Surgeon General issued that warning was um, you know, uh, children who use social media for more than three hours a day are at substantially higher risk of depression and other mental health issues. Uh, the average child in the United States uses social media for three and a half hours a day. Uh, sleep deprivation is one of the top risk factors for a whole bunch of mental health issues. Uh, depression, anxiety, even more serious things like schizophrenia and bipolar, um, and all cause uh, um, death rates, right? Ac not just, you know, automotive accidents, but other kinds of accidents or substance use issues, both uppers because they're tired, downers because they're depressed. Um, right now, 30% of 
teenagers in the United States say that they use social media till midnight or later most weeknights, right? So there's, there's two things here. There's this question of like, what is the minimum floor of safety that we can do for kids? And that's things like, you know, if we had a bill of rights, we, 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 should, we deserve real ways of modulating our use, particularly late at night. You know, that could be things like, I talk about this a lot. If you slightly slow down an application, people use it a lot less. You know, we've known for 20 years that if you make it five milliseconds, 10 milliseconds slower, people use it a lot less. You know, you could imagine an alternative world where you could pick a bedtime at noon when you still have willpower. And for two or three hours before that, you know, the app could get a little bit slower and a little bit slower until you got sleepy and go to bed. Um, those are kind of the baseline safety measures that we have to talk about right now because more and more kids are, are dying, right? The second question is around how do we raise digital citizens for the future? Um, I think this is one of these things where, you know, there's a number of countries around the world like Finland that have really good media literacy curriculums built into schools. You know, the idea that we are moving into a world where media is more and more balkanized. There are more and more independent sources and people have to be educated on how do I navigate and, and criticize those sources. Um, I think that's a, a vital thing that we need to have in our education curriculums. But the secondary thing is, you know, I think having more awareness of, you know, what are options. So in, in a world where we could pass a law like the Digital Services Act, which is what Europe passed last year, we would now have information. We'd be able to ask even basic questions, things like how many moderators speak French? How many moderators are allocated for Canada and for Canadian French? You know, really basic questions and actually get answers. Because right now governments around the world, even governments around the world don't get those answers. So in a world where the public could actually be informed about what the risks are of the different things they're using, you can start to then educate the public on, hey, what if we had a public option? You know, what if your local library ran your local social network? What if you, what are, what, what's the difference between getting most of your information from group chats versus an algorithmic stream? Getting your information from people you know versus from what a computer thinks you want to know. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, I think, part of the conversation for the future where we want to always be trying to give people more real choices versus um, having people either mindlessly consume or having the government come in and take away choices. Yeah, and I think there's a challenge. So it's one, using things like behavioral insights, behavioral economics, and two, being more aware of the public health effects. And then three, um, kind of looking at the incentive structures yeah. and the choice architecture built into these totally. things. I know and you I, have I to- I wanna leave one more. I want to leave one more thing though. Um, I, I know a lot of parents are out there probably listening to your podcast and it can feel really overwhelming when um, people talk about these things. It's like, you know, my kids are in danger. I don't, I don't know how to navigate this. Like I, I can't, I can't just take it. All my, all my child's children's friends are on these platforms. I can't just isolate them. Um, if you currently um, don't have your kids' phones charged in your bedroom at night, please start doing that. Like that's probably the single biggest thing you can do to help your kids. Because like I said, Sleep deprivation is essential, especially when kids are growing. And it's a, at least a step forward you can do um, for, for acting now. Yeah. As someone who has worked inside the one of the biggest social media companies in history and has seen a lot of shit, uh, you know, as we work towards building a quote unquote new version of the internet with Web3, how can we <laughs> avoid making those same mistakes that we did with the Web2 situation? Hmm. 
You know, I have a lot of hope that we're going to see the emergence of a creator-owned social network. So right now, um, you know, when you take that picture of your breakfast, when you take a picture, you know, do that cat picture, um, you know, you're creating the the fuel that allows those companies to make money off of you, like make money. You know, you know, they people don't consume unless people create. Um, I have a lot of hope that Web3 is going to start seeing, you know, a rise of different economic models where you, you know, you can crowd raise funding for these platforms. You can have creators have influence over the mechanisms that allow them to generate revenue. Um, and I think we need to move towards systems where people feel ownership and the ability to influence these places where they spend all their time. And um, I think Web3, because you can start having these, you know, token-based systems and you know, things where people have voting rights, where you can have distributed democracy, um, I think there's real po possibilities there. And I think it'll be super interest interesting to see them play out over the next, you know, 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I hope you enjoy the rest of your stay in Vancouver. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, that does it for this week's episode of Alt Text. A big thank you to Francis Haugen for joining me for a short but interesting conversation. And of course, the team at McGill's Center for Media Technology and Democracy for helping arrange the interview. You can find me on the Bird app at Aaron underscore G, and I'm also on Blue Sky. So I hope to hear from you soon. See you next time.